Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be in your presence, to worship you with your sons and daughters who you have chosen to delight in. We praise you together today. We look forward and anticipate the day when we will stand in your presence and glory, see you face to face, and we marvel at that privilege, and we look forward to it and pray that it would come soon. But for today, as we gather around your word, we pray that you would teach us and lead us into your truth, guide us, help us to be encouraged by seeing you lift our hearts today from the troubles of this world to rejoice again in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at the fall of Babylon the Great, the great city or the great prostitute who we defined as the human-made, human-run powers and systems of this world. Babylon is expressed in society and culture and politics, economics, in rebellion to God. And we saw how God will judge these powers of this world in devastating ways. Now, it was a long sermon and a long passage, and so I didn't get to say everything I would have liked to say a week ago. One thing in particular ties the passages on Babylon into the passages that follow. And I'll be paraphrasing the theologian Augustine, as well as Pastor John Stark in a lot of this part. I appreciate what they have to say on these passages. But they point out that how this world's powers are built on the manipulating of our desires and cravings. And as we hear the laments, the funeral dirges of Revelation 18, we hear the, the sorrow of our desires being frustrated and confounded. It illuminates the, the ever-growing desire of the human heart that is never satisfied. People always want more of what Babylon offers, and they're left devastated. No matter how great life may get, no matter how popular or respected we may be, no matter how many people love us, no matter how much money or stuff we have, no matter how much vacation time we get or where we go, it's never, never, never enough. We always want more. We're always after more. But here's the thing, according to Augustine. Our desire is not the problem. We are creatures designed to desire. Desires aren't the problem. It's what we desire. As John Stark explains, says, we are made to desire something infinite, God himself, which is why finite things like our apartments, our jobs, our bank accounts, our beauty, our relationships, those things are never enough because they're finite. And finite things don't satisfy hearts that are made for infinite things. 
We have largely been fooled and blinded by Babylon that there is something in this world that could be enough to make us happy or satisfy us. There isn't. They won't. God is the only thing that could ever satisfy the deepest desires and longings of our hearts. This world is driven by Babylon, powers and systems that seek to manipulate our desires. But God's kingdom, on the other hand, is built around a king who wants to satisfy our desires. And that's what we're going to see over the next few and final chapters of Revelation. I mentioned this last week, that this world's powers are seen in imagery that deliberately contrasts the imagery of God's kingdom. So Babylon is a great, impressive city. The New Jerusalem is a greater, holy city. So Babylon is a beautiful yet corrupt prostitute. God's city is a purified bride. Babylon has fallen, fallen, utterly destroyed. Heaven will stand strong forever. And people will mourn bitterly for Babylon while people rejoice greatly in glory. And in Revelation, it's like God is holding these two options in front of us and saying, which one do you want? Which one is your heart set on? Which one, is, which one are you living for? Today I want you to see this for yourselves in Revelation 19. So please turn there with me. Grab a Bible. Find one on your phone, however you want to access it. But we, I want you to begin to see the superior, surpassing beauty of God's kingdom. And how this world's pursuits grow so pale in light of it in light of eternity. Danny Aiken prepares us for this passage by saying, there has been a lot of bad news in the apocalypse, in Revelation. But praise be to God, good news, great news has arrived. The response of those who love and follow the Lamb is nothing less than unabated, unhindered, enthusiastic praise and worship. This is a day we have all longed for, and it's finally here. Just need to remind you, though, of what this directly follows, because that contrast is so important. So look at the, the negative stuff we finished up last week, okay? The tail end of chapter 18. I'll be reading from verse 17. It says, And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out, as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. 
and the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and all of all who have been slain on earth. Beginning of chapter 19 will reveal to us, it will pull back the curtain on the praise of heaven. I don't know if it surprised you at all how often revelation just breaks into worship. And we imagine this book to be full of dragons and plagues and warfare, and they're there. But far more so, Revelation is a book of passionate worship before God's throne. And in the five short verses we're going to look at today, I think we'll see three truths about heaven's worship of God, which should then shape our own praise of God today as we pray for, as we anticipate these realities. After all, if we follow Jesus, we are heaven's people. Philippians says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is who we are. This is where we're headed. I believe that we may even be present in these scenes here in Revelation 19, singing these songs. All right? So the first thing I believe we'll see about the way heaven praises God is this, that heaven's praise exalts God's victory. Heaven's praise exalts God's victory, and passionately so. Look at it with me. Verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The heaven is, is seeing, it's witnessing God's victory in the process of being unveiled. And Babylon has already fallen. All his other enemies are going to fall very soon. And so they're praising God for it. This is really the direct response to verse 20 in chapter 18 that we just saw. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. This is like the Super Bowl or Stanley Cup parade for the team and city that wins it all. It's like the late night party with flying confetti for someone who wins an election. This is like the street celebrations after the announcement of the end of a war. Essentially, a, a victory has been won. In an infinitely larger victory than any of those. And people can't help but celebrate. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. We don't know if that's angels or people or both, most likely both. I think it's probable that we, all of Jesus' people, are there in this multitude. But it's this vast crowd in massed choirs singing, shouting at the top of their lungs. Although, notice that John says he heard what seemed to be this. Like he's having a hard time describing 
what exactly what he's hearing. It's indescribable. What are they singing? Hallelujah! Exclamation mark. That familiar word basically means praise the Lord. You saw this recently in Psalms. Hallelujah, praise, Yah, short for Yahweh or God. This chapter repeats hallelujah four times, which are actually the only four times in the New Testament that it's used. Daryl Johnson reminds us that John uses words very carefully here in Revelation. And so hallelujah here, therefore, is not simply the overflow of enthusiasm. It's not simply a first century equivalent to, like, wow, dude. <laughs> he goes on to explain that the place in the Old Testament that the hallelujah is used most is the Psalms. We saw the book of Psalms end with a flourish of praise the Lord or hallelujah recently. But the, the verb is used most in Psalms 113 to 118, known as the Hallel Psalms which is significant because these are songs that were sung during Passover when the Jews would celebrate God's deliverance of them from Egypt. As Johnson says, the celebration of God delivering Israel from Egypt gave birth to the hope, fueled by the prophetic word of the prophets, that one day God would deliver his people again, only this time from Babylon. So sing hallelujah! Hallelujah! See why the fourfold hallelujah comes where it does in Revelation? In Revelation 17 and 18, John has described the fall of Babylon. John has described the fall of the power that opposes God's purposes and oppresses God's people. All the more appropriate to sing the victory song. Hallelujah is sung at the Passover meal, celebrating this deliverance from Egypt. Now, hallelujah is sung because a new meal is at hand. The feast that celebrates the greater deliverance one through the blood of the Lamb. So, hallelujah. I believe that the main theme of this entire passage is captured in that one word. It's God's praise. That's confirmed by the next words from heaven's choir. The salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In other words, salvation does not belong to Babylon or the beast. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Nothing in this world can save you from sin, or death, or the devil, or hell. Salvation is God's domain. It's his possession. It's his gift to give as he sees fit. Salvation and glory. Glory also doesn't belong to this world's powers or God's enemies. No matter how amazing or impressive some things or some people may seem to be now. Celebrities, athletes, tech giants, influencers, the, the wealthy or elite of society, they may appear to be glorious. But that's not true glory. It's a facade. That it won't last you can dress up a grave, but the glory's gone. All true glory belongs to God. He is glorious by nature, by definition. He not only appears glorious and acts gloriously, he deserves all glory from his creation. It's his by right. 
Salvation, glory, and lastly, power belongs to our God. All Babylon's power will crumble in a single day. Our countries and governments are not as powerful as we may think them to be at times. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He holds all true power. If anyone else has any kind of power or authority, it came from his hand. Right? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Or as we heard last week, mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. He's the mighty one. Now notice something important here. All this praise is provoked by God's judgment on Babylon. After that happens, heaven says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I conclude, therefore, that the full eternal expression of salvation, glory, and power is dependent on God's holy wrath being poured out first. You can't have one without the other. Any more than the Leafs can have a Stanley Cup parade prior to a season starting. (laughs) You know you need a victory before you can have a victorious celebration. And so God's judgment exhibits God's power in ways otherwise not seen. God's justice displays God's glory in ways that we might not expect. And God's salvation would never fully come about unless God judges evil. In other words, if we want what you could call a a gospel finish to history, we need God to win first. Do you want to be saved? Your sin, the evil in your heart, which has separated you from God, enslaved you to your desires, destined you for hell? If so, you better hope that God will win a victory over these things. Because we certainly can't, with our extremely limited power. We try to work our way out of sin to be a a better person on our own, and we just end up falling flat on our face over and over again. But the good news about Jesus isn't just that he will win one day. We believe that through Jesus, God has actually already won. He's won the victory. The game's already over. The war's already been won. How so? Because Jesus died for sin, to defeat sin, and he conquered the grave. Revelation has shown us how there are already defeated yet not yet abolished enemies of God and his people that are still enraged and running around, causing chaos. And so there is still a judgment to come when God's victory will be completed. There's a, a still an eschatological or end times judgment coming for evil. But the only way any of us can escape that judgment is to receive God's salvation that's already won. It's to believe that Jesus lived the life we should have and died in our place. Believe that Jesus 
bore God's wrath against sin as he died, shielding us from it. It's to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, is reigning now as king, and is coming back. Without this being true, you have no hope to ever defeat your sin. None. If God hasn't won, we have no guarantees that he will win again one day. And Satan, the beast, Babylon, stand just as much a chance of victory. But do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that does salvation come from God, or will you try to find it elsewhere? He can save you today if you'll let him. We'd, we'd love to, to help you to receive him into your life today. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but he gives it freely, freely to all who call on his name. Praise God that Jesus is one, our salvation, displaying his glory and power along the way. He is really the ultimate underlying reason that heaven exalts God here. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Remember, the Lamb wins simply because of who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. None of the result of this verse that this verse describes is possible without Jesus. We'll wait for that. (laughs) However, at this moment in time, heaven is focused on what has just happened prior. Even though the victory has been won in the past, they're focused on this. And that's understandably grabbed their attention. And so they go on to sing, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Here I think that we can see that heaven doesn't just exalt God's victory, it exalts in it. They exult in it. So heaven's praise exalts in God's just judgment. Exalts in God's just judgment. To exalt means to revel in something, to enjoy it, to feel triumphant joy about it. And that's pretty clearly what this great multitude is doing here. It could almost be called gloating if they were rejoicing in their own victory. But they aren't rejoicing in themselves. They're exalting God, remember. And they are exalting in the the fact of or or enjoying God's just judgment. For his judgments are true and just. John Webster defines God's or divine judgment as God's overwhelming declaration of the truth. God's overwhelming declaration of the truth. We have a hard time fathoming perfect and true justice today because none of us really experience it. Right? All governments and courts and justice systems in the world usually try to be just, but they aren't. Not fully. There are always injustices. Kids, your parents try to be just and fair in disciplining you. Are they perfect? No. 
We don't experience perfect justice on earth, but God's just judgment is perfect. It's holy. It will be entirely right, entirely justified, entirely proportionate. The punishments will fit the crimes. No wrong will go unrighted. We may complain or worry about God's judgment being just now. We won't then. And so heaven sees this happening, witnesses this kind of unprecedented judgment and praises God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. I mentioned last week, that the two main enemies of God's people in Revelation are opposition or persecution from the outside and compromise from the inside. The beast tends to personify persecution, and Babylon personifies compromise, even though there's obviously some crossover there. Like Babylon also persecutes. But in general, the beast attacks through the front door, Babylon attacks through the back. Now notice... What are the two main crimes being judged here? Corruption and persecution. This phrase, judge the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God's enemies corrupted his precious earth. They marred his creation with every imaginable form of evil. If you think of an artist with a magnificent work of art, a painting or a sculpture, a mural, brilliant work of architecture, if someone came along and vandalized it or even destroyed it, that would infuriate us, right? would devastate the artist. How much more so when we mar and corrupt God's glorious creation with our evil. And God's enemies haven't just corrupted things, they've killed his children. His saints' blood has been spilled millions of times throughout history. It says here that God will avenge their deaths which is really an answer to the prayers the martyrs prayed back in Revelation 6. You can think way back then. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so this judgment, it's fulfillment of that. It's a, it's a vindication of both God's people and God himself. And heaven just continues to praise him for it even praising him for eternal judgment. Look at verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. We'll talk more about hell in chapter 20. But the smoke here may or may not be literal. Smoke is very much an image of sacrifice before sacrifices to God and, and smoke of torment is in direct contrast to the smoke of incense that rises to God when his people pray in chapter 8. It's also important to note that people are not the object of judgment here. This is Babylon burning. The smoke from her 
goes up forever and ever. The city that symbolizes earthly powers. Now the word forever likely is literal and shows us the, the horror of rejecting God forever. But like I said, sometimes we have a hard time wrapping our heads around God's judgment. Thinking it sounds too harsh, too severe, too eternal. So the command to rejoice and praise God for it comes across as odd, upsetting, abrasive. But hey, we've got no problem with fictional superheroes itching to avenge things. No problem. Right? When, when Iron Man says, if we can't protect the world, you can be darn sure we'll, we'll avenge it. We don't only think that's right and good. We smile. We cheer. It excites us. We exult in it. And we can't do that for God. Do we not want that in real life? Do we not trust him to do what's right? I think that's it. We don't trust that his judgment, his avenging, will actually be just. These verses echo what is sung in Deuteronomy 32, where it says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. One day, this will happen across the whole globe. It will be cleansed, holy again, perfect. And, and one day, we will see it all with our own eyes and we'll know the full truth of it. And tragically, some of us, likely some of us even in this room, will have refused God's mercy to the bitter end and will fall under his just judgment. Well, anyone who does believe in Jesus Christ to save them will rejoice in his justice. Now, as dissonant as that may seem right now, it will make perfect sense in the end. Believers, including us, will declare God just and worship him for it. The question is, do we believe what he says? Do we trust him? Do we take him at his word? We really wouldn't want any other end for our world anyway if we really thought about it. And John Piper is right when he says, if God turned a deaf ear to sin and evil and injustice and suffering in this world, he would not be true and he would certainly not be just. God here is rightfully and wholeheartedly praised for his justice. And we don't want a God who ignores injustice and atrocities and tragedy. We don't want that. And evil being abolished will free us forever from all of that. As well as usher in the final glorious kingdom of God. Like we can't even fathom how much good will come about because of his justice. Christ will be the final avenger. 
There will be nothing left to avenge once he's finished. And we'll see him in action later on in chapter 19. But we, don't, we just don't usually realize that it's the evil inside of us that's one of the things that has attacked the world and that needs avenging. I don't like to think about that. And we as humanity are the supervillain in this story. We need to make peace with God. Or far more so, we need God to make peace with us. So praise God. Thank God that even while we were yet sinners, even while we were God's enemies in love, Christ died for us. He made peace with us. As John keeps recording what he hears, heaven's courts get caught in this reciprocal chorus of praise. The great multitude sings out what we just read, and then some of the greatest beings in the universe, in heaven, echo back. It says, verse 4, The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And when we met these beings back in chapters 4 and 5, we weren't sure who they were. And in Revelation, they often act as worship leaders, as servants of God doing various tasks before his throne. Here, we see their worship is passionate. They fall to the floor in adoration and homage. Like, there ain't going to be any half-hearted worship in God's presence. And these beings go, Amen! Let it be so! May it happen just like this, Lord. You still possess all the salvation and glory and power, truth and justice. So cleanse your creation from all the ravages of wickedness. Restore all that is right and good and lovely and beautiful. Amen. And then hallelujah again. Praise the Lord. Psalm 106 ends with this prayer. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah. So, while heaven portrays these beings far greater than us, worshiping like this. This is something all God's people are called to. They're all meant to do and will do. When was the last time that you worshiped God with all of your heart and body and soul? When was the last time you heard a prayer for God's justice to come and you gave an enthusiastic amen? you yearn for this? When was the last time that you read or heard about something that God has done and your response was to not just think, but actually say, praise the Lord? Hey, don't ever be shy about praising God. These are prayers and songs we should agree with and echo all the time. And Revelation 19 makes this exact same point, that heaven's praise should be joined by all God's people. 
Heaven's praise should be joined by all God's people. Look at verse 5. It says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now, we aren't sure who exactly spoke these words. Usually a voice from the throne is the voice of God. This particular case may not be. Maybe it's an angel or a creature that's speaking from around the throne. The best option is to simply say that this speaker has divine authorization. He's speaking on behalf of God. Whether or not it's God speaking, this is a command from God to us. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. One day, all of our prayers for salvation, vindication, deliverance, and justice will become praise. Until then, they may often only be prayers for Jesus to come back and Jesus to come through. However, that doesn't prevent us from joining in the praise even now. As Grant Osborne says, this is a message for us as well. For this asks the saints to pray in hope that this vindication will truly come to pass. We are still in the midst of the fray, experiencing more the suffering than the triumph. But... We believe that the final triumph is guaranteed, that Almighty God will indeed bring it to pass. So join in the praise of heaven. Join the hallelujah chorus. Lend your voices to the song. You're not prioritizing worshiping God in your life. Why not? What's keeping you from it? And don't say COVID. Because COVID isn't preventing you from doing all kinds of other less important things. What other things are we pursuing or loving or praising more than we are God? Remember that that God is trying to wake us up to the reality that he is the only thing that will ever satisfy the desires of our hearts. John Piper says, corporate worship is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into our harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonia ways, and we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. We are free! We're free, then that is because at the end of the day our God is victorious. Come on, 11 o'clock, 9 o'clock, put you to shame with an amen there. <laughs> God is victorious. Hallelujah. 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Amen! Hallelujah! Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So is God your God? Are you one of his servants? You belong to him. You serve him in your life. Do you fear the Lord? Do you realize the, the gravity of his commands and the extent of his power? And because of these, do you seek to love and obey him with all you've got? Are you small? Are you young? Are you relatively insignificant here and now? Or are you great? Do people look up to you? You're respected, impressive. Psalm 115, 13 says, God will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. So, if God is your God, you serve him, you fear him, and whether you're small, great, or in between, what are you doing to praise the Lord today? Intentionally, passionately, repeatedly, in a way that spreads his fame and your love for him to those around you. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. This is heaven's praise, and we are heaven's people. So praise our God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, may this be so. Let this happen. Where we do recognize that salvation and glory and power are yours. You are true. You are just. We do pray that you would cleanse your creation, cleanse our world, cleanse our hearts from the way the wickedness has ravaged it. Would you restore all that is right and lovely, beautiful, and good? And again, hallelujah, we praise your name. And all God's people said,